Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. I'm your host, Ken Gagne. On this week's Polygamer... Do you like combining robots? Almost everybody likes combining robots. If they don't like combining robots, they probably like strategy games. Usually, we can grab people pretty easily if we mention combining robots or a strategy game, or combine the two together, combining robot strategy game. That was Sarah Como, Chief Operating Officer of Zephyr Workshop, an independent game studio working on both digital games and board games. We'll be talking about both media in this episode. It was about a year ago at this time that I started discovering the Boston indie gaming scene. And as I went down that rabbit hole, I quickly discovered I could lose my entire social life to this scene. There are no fewer than four monthly events going on in Boston. There is Playcrafting, formerly known as the Boston Games Forum. There is Women in Games Boston. There is Boston Indies. And there is Boston Postmortem. Between these four, you can be busy pretty much every Monday night, as well as some additional nights. And that's not even taking into account annual events like Boston Fig or Game Loop. As I started going to more of these events, I realized that each one had some overlap, some had their own unique, distinct audiences, but one commonality I noticed among all the audiences, all the crowds, all the faces, was Sarah Como. She was showing up to all these events, and I was all the more astonished by her dedication when I realized that she lives more than an hour outside of Boston, and she was driving in to attend all these events. When I saw her at PAX East on a panel, hosted by our mutual friend Oleg Brodsky, who is also an ardent supporter of the Boston gaming scene and is heavily involved in Boston Fig, I realized I needed to talk to her on Polygamer. Gaming has become accepted as a legitimate field of academic study at a variety of major colleges and institutions throughout the country, and young entrepreneurs like Oleg and Sarah are at the forefront of that movement. So I'm happy to be able to speak to her more on that subject, and I look forward to exploring other academic areas in future episodes of Polygamer, as we have historically as well. To ensure you get those future episodes, please subscribe in your podcatcher of choice, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or something else. I recently switched from Instacast to Overcast for iOS, and I'm quite pleased with it. You can find all those options and more at polygamer.net, where you can also sign up for our email newsletter or send feedback, either through voicemail or email. You can also email me directly at feedback at polygamer.net. I'd love to hear some feedback. For example, this is the third episode in a row that I have featured speakers from PAX East 2015. Are you enjoying that trend? Is this helpful to you? Did you go to PAX East and you've already heard all this stuff before? Or is this great for those of you who couldn't make it to that event and you're wondering what you missed? I'm going to be featuring speakers from other events, such as different games in New York City, which I recently attended. And if you've attended events where you have seen speakers that you think would be excellent for Polygamer, I'd enjoy hearing that too. So again, email me at feedback at polygamer.net or tweet me at GameBits. I look forward to hearing from you, and I hope that you're looking forward to hearing from Sarah Como. Here she is. Today I'm continuing the trend of getting the inside skinny on all the best PAX East panels, and today, representing the PAX East panel full-time student, part-time indie, I am chatting with the Chief Operating Officer of Zephyr Workshop, Sarah Como. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Ken. How are you doing tonight? I'm excellent. How are you? Pretty good, pretty good. As I was saying, I came back from a networking event for Venture Capital, which was interesting, kind of more on the business side of things as opposed to the game design things, which is still pretty important. Yeah, you are always all about the state networking and attending conferences and getting to know people. I saw you at event after event after event in Boston, was shocked to learn that you don't even live in Boston, and we'll be getting to that shortly. 
But first, let's find out exactly who it is you are and what it is you do. So as I said, you are the Chief Operating Officer at Zephyr Workshop. What is Zephyr Workshop? So Zephyr Workshop is a game company. We build strategy games for both tabletop board games and digital games. You probably have heard, or maybe you haven't, and if you haven't, you should definitely check it out. Our flagship game is called Aegis. It's a combining robot strategy game. What you do is you build a team of five robots and use your team of five robots to destroy your opponent's team of five robots. While you're doing this, you have to also make sure your robots all kind of cooperate with each other. They share this energy resource. So there's that bit of strategy for the energy resource management coming in there. And your smaller robots also combine into bigger robots like Voltron because everyone loves combining robots. How long has this game been around? This game has been around, it started as a senior capstone project in 2013. I officially came on the project. It was the end of 2013, September 2013. I think the project started closer to January that year. And how long has Zephyr Workshop been around? About the same time, the Zephyr Workshop came about with Aegis kind of coming about. We had to make a really cool sounding company to go along with a really cool robot game. So they both were kind of created together. So you are one of the founding employees of Zephyr Workshop. This is not something that you were hired or contracted into. This was partly something that you willed into existence. Yeah, I wasn't like technically a founding member per se, but over the course of the couple years, I've grown into that position or moved into that position. Um, I would say now I'm definitely one of the pillars of the company, but it didn't quite start out that way. Is this what you do full time? This is one of the things that I do kind of full time. I actually have picked up quite a bit of commission work recently, which is pretty cool. I do a lot of social media, community management kind of stuff for a couple different companies. One is Green Door Labs. They build educational games, educational location-based games for universities, museums, libraries. And I've been helping them out a lot recently with contacting universities and museums to see if they're interested in our cool, easy-to-use platformer platform called the Adventure Builder. And then I'm also working with Greenbrier Games and helping to run their Kickstarters. I'm doing a lot of the community management and setup for the Kickstarter. I unfortunately can't go like too much more into that because it is kind of sensitive information, but I've been doing that as well. You mentioned that Aegis and Zephyr started as a senior capstone project. So let's talk about the academic origins of your current career. You were a student at Becker College in Worcester, Massachusetts. Is that correct? Correct. And they have quite an extensive game design program. As as I understand it, they are actually one of, if not the leading universities and colleges in the state of Massachusetts for game design. And that is a pretty competitive title to hold because New England and especially Massachusetts and especially Boston are quite known for their institutions of higher learning. And so for Becker out in Worcester to be up there in game design, that's really saying something. Yeah, 
they've been they've done a really good job. They've been up there for I think it's been at least five years they've been in the top ten for the Princeton Review. They've done really, really well with that, which is quite excellent for people in kind of the Worcester area as well who maybe can't get out to Boston where the I guess more traditional higher learning is. It's nice there's something in the central part of the state as well. Now, Worcester is also where I went to college. It's about an hour west of Boston, and it's the second largest city in New England. Did you go to Becker specifically to major in game design? Is that what drew you there? It was, yes. I actually started as a music education major. That ended up not working out because that is surprisingly a lot of work. You have a lot of practicing to do and a lot of instruments to learn. And then also on top of all of that, I wanted to be a teacher. So that didn't work out too well for me. And I was like, well, I've always wanted to make video games. So how do I do that? Um, I spent a couple years kind of messing around in computer science after the music education thing. And then I think it was PAX East 2010 or 2011, I ended up going and I saw Becker's booth at PAX East. And I learned more about them from that booth. And that really helped in my decision to go to Becker College in 2011 is when I actually went in the spring. That's really interesting because I went to school for computer science and when I discovered I couldn't hack it, I looked into switching to music education. Huh. So just the opposite path you took. And I didn't end up doing that either. I ended up with communications, uh, which has worked out pretty well for me. But that's interesting that this didn't really cross your path until you spotted it at PAX. You almost stumbled across it. Had you looked into game design programs? Because at the time, around 2010, WPI had a program in that, which is also in Worcester, and other schools were starting to catch on that this is a thing that people can study. I think my kind of big problem was I didn't know, and I think a lot of people still don't really know this, is that you can go to school for game design. It's still a pretty new major. It's maybe like 15 years old tops. And I think people just don't know you can go to school for game design. So it actually hadn't crossed my mind until I saw the Becker booth at PAX that I can actually go to school to make games. I think it's somewhat unusual because computer science programs don't train you to work in a specific genre of software. Like you don't go major in word processing or security software. You major in computer science, which is more general, more broad, and then you apply it however you see fit. But I think game design is unique because it's so interdisciplinary and requires so many more skills beyond just computer science. Like it requires uh, literature and art and music. Was there a specific track that you focused on? I kind of wanted to do level design for a really long time. And one of the things I did really like about Becker was they let you kind of take a try in everything. So I got to mess around in programming and 2D games and 3D games and 3D modeling and texturing and 3D animation and level design. So I got to really try everything and see what I liked, what I didn't like. And it was kind of funny because in the end, it ended up being where I liked doing doing marketing and social media, which kind of wasn't like super covered at Becker, but I had learned of it through other things and 
networking connections. And I just think it's interesting that I kind of went in with one thing I wanted to do and came out with something not entirely different, but not where I thought I would be. I know that's kind of common, though, in a lot of people who go to college, they go for one thing and then it ends up changing. A lot of people don't go to college for game design at all. They end up in the industry sort of sideways. They start off as a journalist or a teacher, and that's a perfectly legitimate route. You can end up very successful. For example, Robert Boyd of Zaboid Games, which made the Breath of Death and Cthulhu Saves the World and some of the Penny Arcade games, was founded by a gentleman who was entirely self-taught, used to be a high school English teacher. So what advantage, if any, do you feel you got by a more deliberate route by actually studying this with the intention of going out into the world and doing games? I think there are a few really big advantages. The one, the first, and I would say most important is it got me networking and getting to know people early because in the game industry, it really helps if you know a lot of people because then you can ask a lot of questions if you're not sure of something. And then when you get to know people well and they get to be your actual friends which you should always like when networking always try to make friends when you network i just like to kind of throw that out there i've made some fantastic friends networking and then later down the line they might see a job that maybe they can't do or you're better at and they'll kind of toss it your way and then lo and behold you have a job from these network connections that you've made The other really important thing I think college let me do was what I kind of like to call have a chance to fail safely. So if I'm in college and in a group working on a project for a semester or whatever, and we've definitely bit off more than we can chew, like for example, I was working on a project once where you wanted to make like a Legend of Zelda dungeon crawler with eight different dungeons that had like three different random interiors and it was just definitely way way too much to do in even probably a year but because I was in college and it was just a project it was fine for me to realize oh the scope is way too much this is definitely something we have to come back to with like a bigger budget and more time and I got to kind of fail safely and learn about scope like that way, for example, without having to worry about like being out in the world and trying to make a living or whatever and failing that way and being like, now what do I do? I need to make some money somehow. And that's really important. I think myself being a college educator, I've seen some students who are very focused on the grades and they forget that this is the time to screw up. And that that's one of the ways in which you learn and that as at least in my grade, as long as you're learning, you're going to get a good grade because I can see that you're putting in the effort. And if you make a mistake, then that's the place in which to make the mistake. Yeah, it's a much safer environment when, like, at the worst, a grade is on the line. But as you said, um, educators tend to be very more understanding if you've, like, really put in the work and really tried and the project just doesn't go through, something happens but they see you put in the work, they're much more kind of forgiving in at least passing you from what I've kind of seen. What's also helpful to know is that I have been out of college for about 15 years, at least undergrad. In all that time and in all the jobs I've had, not a single employer has ever asked, 
to see my transcript. They don't care what my grades were. They don't care what my GPA was. All they want to see on their resume is that I graduated. Yeah. You know, and, and so whether I got an A minus or a B plus is immaterial as long as I show them that I took the class and I learned something from it. Yeah, as long as you say, yeah, you've learned something from it. And if you have a bachelor's in something, at least from my experience so far, I've only been out of college for about a year and a half. But when applying for jobs, I have found that as long as it says you have a bachelor's degree in something that is like, acceptable for the job, for the jobs I've been looking for, at least. Yeah, especially nowadays and in this economy, it's almost the minimum to get a lot of jobs. It's not always true. For example, John Radoff, founder of Disruptor Beam Studios, which makes Game of Thrones Ascent and Star Trek Timelines, he dropped out of college in the early 90s because he went for a semester and realized I could be spending my time founding a company and making my own games. And that's what he's done, and he's built up a very successful company. Did you ever feel like your time at Becker was getting in the way? Like, you could have been doing more on your own. Like you could have escaped that safe environment. You learned everything you could. You just wanted to get out into the world and start practicing and applying everything you learned. At the time, no, because if I have kind of goals for learning or goals for what I'm trying to do, something I can like see and really work towards, I tend to do a lot better when learning or working on a project. And, uh, that's something that Becker also really gave me was that kind of structure where I was like, all right, I have to do this, this, and this to make games and get through the classes and kind of all that stuff. Looking back at it now and now kind of knowing what I know, which I think a lot of people say this as well. Um, I probably would have just kind of jumped right into games like right away if I had known what I know now, but I it's a weird catch-22 where I couldn't have gotten where I am now without going to school. So I, I am glad I went to Becker and made the network connections and had that structure and got to learn. And you get to work with different people, too, because sometimes you're put on teams that aren't your first choice in college, which is like real life. If you're hired and put on a team, you don't get a say, usually, in the team member. So it was good practice for that as well. You mentioned that you left college with a skill set that may have been slightly different from what you expected, and now you are the chief operating officer of Zephyr Workshop. What skills does a COO need? What exactly is it that you do? The best way I like describing in what I do is I try to make everything run as smooth as possible and to remove stress or blocks from the lead artist, lead designer who is Breeze Grigas, and then our lead kind of number cruncher mechanics guy, Jesse Clark. So while they're, for example, designing new robots and designing new mechanics, I will be taking care of marketing or social media or realizing what events are coming up that we can go to to test the game at. So I really let them focus on the game design part of making games and I move all that so uh, all the other stuff so they can just focus on that you mentioned you do some freelance community management it sounds like community management is also very much a part of your role at Zephyr correct yes I really enjoy meeting fans talking to fans um I realized we've been to PAX East 
three times now. I didn't go the first time in 2013, but 2014 we went and we were in Indie Mega Booth. And I realized I just love being at conventions and talking to people and seeing people get really excited for the game. And the whole convention in itself is just so invigorating and exciting. And there's so many people. I just love doing things like that and communicating with fans. So it ends up working out well that I've moved into a more community management role for a lot of the things that I do. Zephyr's flagship product that you were describing is a card game or a board game? Correct, yes. Tabletop gaming seems to be really popular these days. It's back in a big way, thanks to European games, Kickstarter, Will Wheaton series, and more. But they're helping to popularize it. But what is it about board games that makes people want to play them and popularize them like that? What is it that's so appealing? Because I get on the subway every day to go to work and I see people staring at their iPhones playing these $1 games and then I get home and I see people logging into their Xbox Ones and PS4s to play MMOs and on their PCs, MMORPGs. And then you have this physical game that is almost quaint by today's standards. You have to spend 25 or more dollars to get it. You have to get everybody in a room together. You have to have like 100 parts. And if you lose a part, then you may very well not be able to play. So what is it about board games that in the 21st century makes them more popular than they were 10 years ago? I think board games have gotten more popular because it's a different experience than kind of sitting down and playing a video game. Because... I mean, there are some video games where you sit down and you can do couch co-op where you're sitting next to a friend and playing, but usually they're kind of single-player experiences. Even if you're playing like an MMO on your Xbox One, you're still in your room kind of by yourself, even if you're talking to people. I think with board games, people like the social interaction of setting everything up and sitting down and playing and getting to just hang out and enjoy people's company, um, maybe eat some snacks or whatever, and just get to enjoy a game and kind of this togetherness time. Because I feel like, especially with kind of smartphones and everything, people are so in tune to technology, kind of myself included, that it's nice to be able to sit down with your family or your friends, set up a board game and get to play a game. But it's not easy to do that nowadays. For example, when I was in college, Smash Brothers and Mario Party were the bomb. We played those games to death. And then I graduated, and there have been so many sequels to both of those franchises in the last 15 years, and I've hardly played any of them because when you're in college, you just walk down the hall, and there are people who are eager for an excuse to avoid their homework. But once you're graduated you really need to coordinate amongst several people's busy schedules to get them all into the same place together. So I would think that playing board games lacks a lot of the convenience that online play and even solo play affords us through different mobile devices or consoles. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. But I still think it's just, there's something nice about just being able to sit down and kind of like move pieces around or lay down a card or even just set up a board game in general. It's just a nice kind of physical tactile feeling. I think people like that people keep coming back to. 
I actually saw an interesting article today, I believe, that someone had wrote people are actually getting kind of annoyed with video games because there are so many of these microtransactions going on. And, like, I don't have a problem with microtransactions when they're done well. Like, for example, League of Legends does them very well, um, letting you get new skins, new champions, for example. But people seem to be getting kind of fed up with how much people are trying to make money off games. And I understand people need to make money, they need to make a living. But I think because with, like, for example, a board game, you buy a $25 board game once and you can play it as many times as you want until you do happen to maybe lose that very important single piece. But you don't have to keep buying into it, usually. Um, you just buy it once and you're good to go for years of entertainment. It's true that pay-to-play hasn't come to board games yet, or free-to-play, but I would say that DLC has, because there are so many board games out there that have expansion packs, and I, like, I have every expansion pack for uh, Cards Against Humanity, and I liked Settlers of Catan, so I bought the Star Trek edition, and then you know you like the American version of Ticket to Ride, so you buy the European version. The nice thing about those is that, with a few exceptions, they're still mostly self-contained games. Like, you don't have to have Forbidden Island to play Forbidden Desert. Still, when, you know, board games can establish themselves as a franchise almost the same degree that, say, Call of Duty can. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. Catan definitely does have a lot of expansions and add-ons and things like that. But I think it's still, you can still buy, like, the base game of Catan and have fun and you don't like have to update it for example if you do choose to update it because you do really like the game that's obviously something you can do but the still kind of base game is there without having to buy an extra and also once you do get people in the same room together depending on the game it can be much easier to get a board game going than it is a computer game because with a computer game you have to you know exchange usernames and install the patches and make sure everybody's running the same version but with a board game, for example, I can bring my Bananagrams to my office and on lunch break I can grab somebody and say, hey, you want to play? And they'll say, sure. And we clear off a table and, and within an hour we can play six or seven rounds. Even if they've never played the game before, I can teach them that quickly. Whereas someone who's trying to learn a computer game for the first time, you know, you're not going to sit down with somebody and play Steel Battalion for the first time and expect them to have a satisfying experience. That's just yeah. not going to happen. <laughs> Definitely. Zephyr Workshop also does... You mentioned digital when you were describing the company, and that's the context in which I met you. I saw you at all these different indie game events in Boston. Does Zephyr have their hand in that as well? Yes, we are working on a digital game. Um, I can tell you a little bit about it. We took it to the Mass Digi Game Challenge. There was a pitching contest, I think, in January, and we pitched this game called Flora Fiora. Um, I wish I had some art to show you. It's quite beautiful. Um, but it's a game about growing connections. So the base of the game is you have this little planet with these little flower people on it. And you're, these little flower people on this one planet want to connect and grow with other flower people from other planets. So in order to do that, you have your little flower person. And this will be an iPad game. That's what we have in the works. And you fling the little flower person to this next planet. 
and they interact with the little citizens there, they're happy, and then a bridge, a bridge is built between the two planets. And from there, they can then exchange their little citizens and resources to keep both the planets happy, and the game at so far planned will keep progressing like that, where you get the necessary resources, be it flower seeds or water or fertilizer, and you bring it to other planets to grow your connections and make the whole universe a happy, flowery place. Just to back up for a sec, you mentioned that you pitched this at Mass Digi Challenge. For our listeners who don't know what that is, could you give us a little bit of background? Sure. So the Massachusetts Digital Game Institute is a really awesome company in Worcester. They work with Becker College, and they set up a lot of events for all game designers in Massachusetts. So as, for example, I mentioned the pitching contest, which is open to high school students, college-level students, professional indies, where they you just go in for a weekend with either a game idea or not a game idea, and you make up a game pitch like you would try to sell the game to investors, and you get feedback on the pitch from mentors and then judges. Another really cool thing they do, which I actually got to experience, was an internship. They let you stay at Becker College for 11 weeks over the summer, and they put you on a team with other college students, um, not necessarily just in Massachusetts. We've had some from, I believe, New York. can't remember where else, but it's not it's a whole bunch of different colleges, colleges out in the Amherst area, like UMass Amherst, New Hampshire College. And you get to work with these people for 11 weeks to build a game. And at the end of the internship, you have something to show and to put on your resume and your portfolio, which is super helpful. And they bring in mentors for you to talk to. And they'll help you out, give you advice. And the two guys running it are Mati Sharma and Tim Lowell, and they're really awesome. So definitely check out Mass Digi. They run a lot of events in the area. They're really cool. I imagine that creating a digital game requires an entirely different skill set from what Zephyr has done before. Did you need to recruit, or is there the opportunity for somebody who is skilled in level design in one medium, for example, to apply those same skills in a different medium? A lot of the things do overlap. Um, the biggest thing we did have to find for the digital game were a couple programmers. Um, but other than that, a lot of the same game design rules and like level design rules and good game mechanics and, for example, marketing and stuff all transfer very well, which is nice that you can kind of work on one thing, a board game, and then if you decide you want to do a digital game, it's not too difficult to transfer your skill set over to work on something else. I want to give a shout out to some amazing people who are working with us on Flora Fiora. There is Andrew and Alex from Mob Made Games. They are doing all the programming for this game. You can find out more projects at mobmadegames.com. And then we have a dedicated artist for this project. Her name is Emily Hancock. And all of the beautiful art that you see is her work. You can see more of her artwork at emilyhancock.com.
do we have an ETA for when that game will be out? Um, no, we don't. We're still working on it. Um, hopefully have a prototype soon. We will definitely keep you updated um, on the game. We're very excited to work on this and kind of try our hand at digital games. We've worked in digital games before, but we're super excited for this one. So we will definitely keep you updated on any new word about that. And where do people get updates like that? We are on Facebook. You can look us up. We are Project Aegis. We also have a Twitter you can follow. That is at Zephyr underscore workshop. And then we also have a website, which is ZephyrWorkshop.com. I usually ask for the podcast guests to share their social network connections at the end of the show. And this is not the end of the podcast. We're only about halfway through because there's still a lot more I want to talk to you about, such as Mastigy is very heavily connected with Becker and also in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I met you at the very lively Boston indie gaming scene, which has a variety of events every week. You talked about all the networking opportunities and friends that you made at those connections and at Becker. So I'm curious, what role does geography play in someone who wants to get into the industry? If there is somebody who lives in Fargo, North Dakota, can they get into the game industry? Or would you recommend that they move to Boston or San Antonio or Silicon Valley or Seattle? I think geography can make it easier. Because, for example, there are a lot of meetups in the Boston area for game devs. And I think, I don't know because I've never searched for meetups in North Dakota, but I imagine they're more scarce. But if you work hard on a game, and we have all this fantastic social media now, so I know there's a whole bunch of Facebook groups, like the indie game developers you can be part of, and there's Twitter. And there is this new site I just learned about. I think it's called IndieDB.com. Yes, IndieDB.com, where you can actually put up your digital indie games, at least, which is pretty cool. So there are ways to reach out with people to people on the Internet, which is super helpful, um, especially if you are making games. I feel like you're going to be on the Internet anyways. But I do feel it's a bit easier if you were in kind of the Boston area or Silicon Valley, or I know there are starting to get a lot of companies in Texas as well in the Dallas area. Um, so I think at some point you would have to move, especially if you're looking for a industry job, if you don't want to stay as an indie game developer, if you wanted to go kind of AAA or to a bigger company, I think you'd have to move. But I'd also say it's definitely possible to start off somewhere kind of less centralized in those areas and still make it. It just might be a little more difficult. And even if you are working remotely, just having that network of people who can support you and collaborate with you is very important. For example, the recent Xbox One game, Ori in the Blind Forest, developed by Moon Studios, that entire development team is spread all around the world. And many of them never met in person until they showed up at E3 to demo the game. So that is more the exception than the rule, but they're not the only ones doing this. For example, WordPress as a company, Automatic, their developer, they are without any physical central headquarters. They just all work remotely. And I would think that if it works for a company that big and that successful, that owns such a large portion of the content management system market, probably you can develop games remotely as well. 
Yeah, you definitely can. I think it also depends on finding a good team that communicates well if you're working remotely, because that does get a little bit harder, but I would say it can definitely be done. So if geography is so important, how come, if I may ask, do you go to so many events in Eastern Mass, and yet you call Western Mass your home? Massachusetts is not as big a state as some of the Midwest states, but that's still a long haul to be making on a regular basis. Yeah, it is. A lot of people I've met in Eastern Mass, as I said, they have become my friends, and I do like seeing them on a semi-regular basis, so part of it is kind of just going out and getting to hang out with friends, but I also feel like it's probably like an hour and 45 minute haul, and I guess I've just gotten used to it, but I don't think it's that bad anymore. It's like a good excuse to drive on the highway and listen to some loud music or think about game development stuff. Or usually what I try to do is pick someone up in Worcester so I'm not kind of hoofing it alone. But, eh, I mean, if I could afford to move out to Eastern Mass, I definitely would. Hopefully at some point I'll, I'll get out there to even make my traveling a little bit easier. But it's something I don't really mind doing at, the, at this current stage in time. There are certainly benefits to commuting. Ever since I moved closer to my job in Boston, I find I'm well behind on my podcasts because it's when I'm in the car that I listen to stuff like Major Nelson and Chatterbox and Less Than or Equal, and I hate falling behind on those things, but I just don't have the time, that time to be by myself and be alone and quiet, like you mentioned, and just let your mind percolate over everything you've learned. But at the same time, when I get out of my job at 5 p.m., I'm right in the heart of Cambridge, and that is where all this indie stuff can go. I literally cross the street and there is a demo party with 40 indie games coming out in the coming year that I can get my hands on. And that is something I love about this geography is just being so close to so many brilliant, creative people who are eager for you to get your hands on what they're working on. Yeah, there's there's definite trade-off like that, but that's all right. I, I, I'll still keep hoping it for now until... Something comes along my way where I can get out there, hopefully. Another advantage that you've taken of being close to so many activities and events in the gaming scene is PAX East. As you mentioned, Zephyr Workshop has been at PAX East for the past several years. What's it like to be a small studio at a massive event? It's it's pretty hard to describe. It's really, really awesome. One of the kind of super neat things is you get to see setup of everything before it actually happens. And then when the show floor closes at six, you are invited to go play some of the games at the end of the day. So that's cool. It makes you feel, I can't think of a good word for it. Um, It's a really cool feeling being able to kind of hang out and mingle with, for example, like the Blizzard game developers on Overwatch and really get like one-on-one time to talk to them about it because there's not a huge line of people, like 200 people waiting to play the game. There's like maybe 10 people playing the game and a developer's talking to like two people. So it's really cool being able to have a conversation with them as opposed to kind of talking to them in passing. It's also a really fantastic experience. We went to the we went to Paxis through the Indie Mega Booth, who are super awesome. They make it so indies can afford to get into these big conventions because if you wanted to buy 
a table at PAX East yourself. I think it's something, it's pretty expensive. It's like $2,000 or something to get one table. And the Indie Mega booth makes it much more affordable. So you can actually get on the floor with other people, other indies around you and have that nice support. And it's also super helpful because it lets people know where to go for the indie games. I know some people who, when they go to PAX East, um, they actually don't even look at any of the AAA games. They go right to all the indie games and stay there for the weekend. So it's really great for location and marketing, and you get to talk to the other indies around you as well and get to know them better and kind of see where they've come from and what they're doing and be supportive of them and make new friends. It's also just a giant rush because you're at a table talking to fans or other people nonstop for the three days. And it's exhausting, but it's a good kind of exhaustion. You feel really excited because people get really excited about your game and you get to tell people about it. And it's fantastic. That camaraderie you mentioned with folks like from Blizzard, do you find that there's no class divide between indies and AAA? You can go up to them and say, I'm from Zephyr Workshop, and they don't just sniff and say, never heard of you, and walk away? One thing I really like about game development is I've never actually kind of met anyone who was mean or condescending. Everyone's super cool. So yes, I could go up to like someone in Blizzard, and strike up a conversation with them about my game or their game. And I think part of that is because we're all just so excited to like be telling people about our games because we're like, look at this thing that we've worked on. It's really cool. We love it. We think you'll love it too. And then you just kind of get into conversation about why the game's really cool and maybe how you went about building it. And you can ask some kind of questions about how they decided to make Overwatch or whatever. And they're very cool and just willing to chat with you, which is really nice. A lot of people are like that. What about interacting with your fans? I myself found the show floor at PAX East this year, as almost every year, to be somewhat overwhelming. And that's not surprising given that 80,000 people attend this event. I go mostly to the panels because that's where I can sit down and it's relatively quiet as I listen to somebody speak. On the show floor, I have a really hard time finding my way around, getting where I want to be without jostling a thousand other bodies, getting my hands on a game and getting a good impression of it where I can actually interact with the game in a meaningful way and hear the soundtrack. That may not be the case for a board game, of course, but how do you go about capturing anybody's attention in such a frenetic, kinetic environment? A lot of people actually are really curious about what you're doing. And they just kind of want to see what's going on. So a lot of people will actually come up to you and be like, hey, what are you working on? Or, for example, with Aegis, we start with the question, do you like combining robots? And almost everybody likes combining robots. And if they don't like combining robots, then we ask if they like strategy games. And if they don't like combining robots, they probably like strategy games. And occasionally you get someone who doesn't like either, and they kind of just keep along on their way but usually we can grab people pretty easily if we mention combining robots or a strategy game or combine the two together combining robot strategy game 
and people just love that idea and want to learn more about it. So it's actually pretty organic just grabbing people. Um, especially at something like PAX, people are there for the games and want to know about the games. So it's pretty simple to just tell them about a game. We've been to, for example, like anime conventions before. Um, so yeah, we've been to Connecticut, for example, which is in Hartford, Connecticut, in the Connecticut Convention Center and the Hartford Marriott downtown. And even though that is a multi-genre convention, it's a lot more focused on the anime, which is kind of Japanese cartoons like Naruto or Bleach, for example. And it's a little harder to grab people there because they're more interested in the anime. Um, you still get some people who are interested and easy to grab, but you have to work a little bit harder. But people are really cool, and if they're interested, they're like, oh, no, it's all right. I'm going to, like, it's fine. That was a bad sentence. <laughs> it's more difficult to grab people when there's a big focus on a bunch of different things at a convention as opposed to one specific focus like video games. Well, if focus is that important and you, your company so far focuses primarily on board games, PAX is, of course... To- it it has a huge board game board game contingent, but it's still predominantly video games. So, what would you say is the board game equivalent of PAX? Is it important that Zephyr Workshop or somebody who's creating a company like that go to, for example, Gen Con? If you can afford to go to Gen Con, I would definitely go to Gen Con. That is the biggest board game convention, at least in the states, if not in the world. Um, that is in, I think it's Indianapolis, Indiana. That sounds um, it, about right, yeah. It's July 13th to August 2nd. Um, we haven't been yet. We're actually going this year. I'm very excited for that. But I've heard it's absolutely fantastic, and there's so much board game stuff there. You, like, don't know what to do, and it's super cool. I'm really excited to take Aegis there and play games with people. Also, not in the New England area. It'll be interesting to go to really another part of the country for us, because we are based in Worcester. We go to most things in New England. So it'll be fun to go somewhere else and kind of spread Aegis that way and see what people think about it. But I imagine uh, a lot of people will like it the same because, again, combining robots are way too cool. Have you been to either Total Con in Mansfield, Massachusetts, or Unity in northern Massachusetts? I haven't heard of Unity, but we have been to Total Con. Um, that was a super fun one. I think they were super cool, and they let us run demos for a day, which is really cool. So we got to just kind of hang out and get people to play the game and get people interested in it that way. And it wasn't too bad of a drive either, either which was nice. The main way I know about TotalCon is because that's where I met a former guest on this show, Lorian Green, who created the documentary Going Cardboard, all about the resurgence in popularity in board games. Have you seen that film? I have not, but that sounds super interesting. Well, I'm sure we can hook you up with a copy. That would be fantastic. (laughs) I'd love that. Thank you. Now, your company profile on ZephyrWorkshop.com says that you're currently working as a Kickstarter guru. You mentioned that at the top of the show you're doing some crowdfunding strategery for some of your freelance clients that you really can't talk too much about. Is there any crowdfunding in Zephyr's future? There will be, yes. I can't give you an exact date because 
We still have to work out some of the details. I can tell you it will probably be, if it's not before the end of this year, it will be within about a year of this time. So you can expect something about that soon, definitely. And what project will you be attempting to kickstart? It will be, you just will be kickstarting the Combining Robot game. Awesome. Since you are a Kickstarter guru, can you give us some advice on what you have observed as working and not working? For example, I've seen people like Tim Schafer and Al Lowe who have storied histories in the games industry go online and kickstart their projects without too much difficulty. And then I've seen storied names like David Crane, creator of Pitfall, who his Kickstarter project completely fell flat. And so there is variability even among the big names I imagine that it's even more volatile for small indies. So if a small company wants to kickstart a project, what would you recommend? Like, are there, I know that a full audit on a Kickstarter campaign is very specific to a person's goal and project, but is there some general advice that you can offer? I would actually say if you're going to run a Kickstarter, start getting kind of the hype for the Kickstarter at least a month in advance. And the way you would do that is you want to get people excited and to know about your game. So I would start like tweeting about it, like Facebook posts, blog posts about it at least a month in advance. For Zephyr Workshop, we've actually been keeping and like updating a mailing list since PAX East 2013. So when we do have the Kickstarter, we'll be able to email everyone who is interested in the game to let them know that it's going to happen. So then hopefully they can also like tell their friends if they're excited about it to back the game. So there's a lot of kind of social media prep involved before you even run the Kickstarter. And then I would also say you want to make sure when you're on a Kickstarter that you can pay for all the Kickstarter fees and everything, but also find out what is the minimum amount of money you can run the Kickstarter safely. So if, for like example, I'm just throwing numbers out here. If we wanted to run the Aegis Kickstarter and like $50,000 would be absolutely fantastic and like no problem for us to run it. But like we can really run it and be safe at 25,000. Go for the 25,000 and make sure all your numbers match up and you can pay for everything and you're not going to get stuck with having to pay any extra money out of your pocket or anything. But really make sure you crunch the numbers and kind of run it the Kickstarter as effectively as possible so you can reach your funding goal because with Kickstarter it is either all of the funding or none of the funding so you want to try to make sure to get all of your funding if um, all your funding so you can run your project. I'm curious about the pre-launch hype that you were talking about on social media because I imagine for some people their mindset might be well, we should just get this project perfect and then launch it and then tell everybody about it because what's the point of telling people that we're going to be asking for their money a month in advance 
when at that moment we're not yet prepared to take their money. That sort of marketing isn't actionable. We're telling them that we're going to be asking them for money. What is the argument in favor of getting the word out beforehand if people can't act on it? I think it's good to just kind of plant that in their mind that we will be running a Kickstarter soon, so that way they at least know. Because surprisingly, or not surprisingly, but people can be missed when you're trying to run a Kickstarter. So, like, we have a big mailing list, and we send out emails to everyone that we're going to be running a Kickstarter in a month's time, and the emails could get lost or whatever. So then, like, a week before the Kickstarter, you, like, send out an email again saying we're going to go live on the Kickstarter whatever day it is. So, like, if someone did happen to miss the Kickstarter, the first announcement... They have the second announcement, so now they know what's going to happen. And also, I like the idea of kind of telling people early because this kind of goes back to the game dev meetups in the Boston area. Is you can also go to like the game dev meetups or conventions or something, and you can tell people before the Kickstarter happens, hey, we'll be Kickstarting soon, keep an eye out for it just kind of like get a natural hype of people getting excited for your Kickstarter and then them telling their friends and their friends tell their friends and kind of helping it to grow so people know what's going to happen and then we'll back your project. I'm so glad to hear you recommend having an email list because I was recently speaking with Steve Lubitz of the Isometric Podcast and he said, Ken, email is so old school. And I... It pained me to hear that because it means that I must be old school, which I guess isn't actually a bad thing. I still have an Apple II on my desk. But the thing with social media is I follow 1,500 people on Twitter, and if any one of them tweets, I'm going to miss it, chances are. And I think there are probably some specific statistics out there that show that, whatever, 5% of your followers see any one of your tweets. But with email... Email won't go away until I take an action on it. It will be delivered to me. I will not miss it. I will see it. And it will probably leave an impression. I We did a very unscientific study at Computer World Magazine when I was an editor there, back around 2011 or so. We asked our readers, what is the most popular method that you use for sharing our content with your friends? Facebook, Twitter, Google+, LinkedIn, Reddit, email. And... 40% of the respondents send email. Now, granted, Computer World's target audience skews a little bit older, CIOs and CEOs at Fortune 500 companies. So maybe compared to people like me and Steve, who are the same age, those gentlemen and women are old school. But I still feel like email has a place in a marketing campaign. Yeah, I mean, I don't see a point in cutting out a form of contact with your fans because it's old school. I think your fans are going to want to know what you're up to. And as you said, they could miss it on Twitter or on Facebook, but email, as long as the email address is correct, they're going to get it and then have to look at it and then delete it. So I agree that I think email's important and a good thing to still utilize. I still use email correspondence all the time for everything I do. And going back to the pre-launch hype that we were talking about, one of the best Kickstarters I ever saw was not for a game, and it was not 
a relatively large project, but it was for a group of singers, a band called the Misbehaven Maidens out of the D.C. area. They were looking for about $5,000 to record their first album. The social media manager of the group that ran the Kickstarter campaign made a Facebook event a month beforehand and invited everybody to come to the event with the time and day of the event being when the Kickstarter campaign launched. And every day in the event, she would post a little update, such as revealing what one of the rewards was going to be or what they were going to do with the crowdfunding revenue. And it was great. And by the time the campaign actually launched, they got all $5,000 in the first 12 hours, which for them was a lot. Yeah, that's really smart. I hadn't thought of doing something like that, but I think that's a really good technique to do it because it's really, I feel for Kickstarters, it's getting people to know what's happening. Like people might just not know what's happening. So if you can get people to know, they get excited and tell their friends again, and then you get funding, which is excellent. Great. So let's talk about one of your other roles. We're coming up to about an hour, and so this will be the last topic we're going to hit, which is the Boston Festival of Indie Games. Again, I hope that people listening to this show who reside outside of Massachusetts aren't getting too weary of us talking about how awesome Beantown is, but the Boston Festival of Indie Games was launched, I believe, in 2012, and you were the PR assistant for 2013 and PR manager for 2014. Correct. So how did you get involved with that organization? We interviewed the founder of the event, Fiona Sherbach, or one of the co-founders, on a previous episode of this show. So we have the story about how the event came into being. But after its first year, how did you get involved with it? I actually got involved with it by Fiona. Um, I remember I was still in college. I was at Becker College. And Fiona had come in to speak about... It was networking, and I believe it was also what HR or Human Resources does. And uh, after her talk, she, first of all, she's very inspiring to listen to, if you've ever heard her talk. She's very good at getting people motivated and doing stuff. And after she had talked at this class at Becker, she was hungry and wanted to go get food somewhere. So she actually invited the class to go grab food with her. I think like 10 to 15 people ended up going with her to go grab food. I was one of them. And I remember her saying like, there's lots of different ways to get into the game industry. And one way to do it is to volunteer for stuff. And then I believe she had brought up the Boston festival of any games to me. And I was like, Oh man, this first of all sounds really fun. And second, I should probably volunteer for this because it sounds fun. I want to be a part of this and help it grow. And it does seem like a really good idea. So I actually got brought into FIG um, with Fiona's suggestion. And then ever since then, I've just stuck with it and I love doing it. It's a really great, super fun time. Um, I hope it keeps getting bigger and bigger. I know it's grown since its first year and super exciting to see all these indie games from the Boston or New England area in one place and kind of just a giant celebration of indie games, which is fantastic. Were you at the first Boston Fig in 2011? I do not believe I was, no. 
I'm sorry, in 2012, but that first year, I think it was basically held in two classrooms. They had no accurate expectation of just how popular this event was going to be, and it was so darn hot and so crowded, and they broke it out into a full sporting arena, basically, for the following years, which was a dramatic improvement, but wow, that first year was just so small. Yeah. I love working it, too. The first year I worked it, I ended up working, I think, the admission booth the whole time, more or less, which was fun because I got to talk to some of the press people coming in, some of the game developers coming in to show their games, which was really cool. And then the second year, I actually got to do interviews with game developers, which I think are on, I don't know if they're on the Boston Festival of Indie Games website, or if they're on their YouTube page, but we do have the interviews somewhere. Um, You can check out the Boston Festival of Indie Games website, it's bostonfig.com, but it's, it was a ton of fun, and I actually really liked doing the interviews, which I wasn't sure how I would like doing them, but it ended up being a blast, and I got to talk to some really cool game designers as well. Are you going to be continuing to be involved in Boston Fig in 2015? I am, yes. What are you going to be doing for them this year? Um, We're still kind of figuring that out. I offered to kind of be a catch-all for things they might need. Um, so they haven't quite gone back to me yet in what they need. But once they tell me what they need, I will get on working on that for them to keep making the festival more and more awesome. In your two years so far involved with Boston Fig, do you have any specific anecdotes of awesome people you worked with or a a project you contributed to or something that really stood out in your memory as making you say, wow, I'm really glad I'm volunteering for this? I would say I've worked on the marketing side both times, and the marketing team for the Boston Festival of Indie Games are super awesome people who know how to get stuff done and are also really helpful if you have any questions or if you can't find anything. So I would say the team and teams in general working to make the festival happen, they're a great group of people and do a really good job with it. Would you say that this has been a professional development opportunity for you, that this is something you can put on your resume and say, hey, just like how I learned stuff at Becker, I learned something at Boston Fig, and this is now something more that I can bring to the table? Yeah, it's definitely on my resume already, um, which is cool. And then it's also really cool because I have the contacts I can use as well for references if I need them. Um, So it's been a huge help and a lot of fun, and I'm really glad to have done it and to keep doing it. One of the contacts you made at that event was our mutual friend, Oleg Brodsky, correct? Correct, yes. And he's the one who recruited you to the PAX East panel that I saw you on last month, correct? Correct, yes. So unfortunately, that panel was at a challenging time slot. It was 4.30 p.m. on Sunday, which is literally the very last slot of the entire weekend. And I regret that I had to leave halfway through, so I was there for the first 30 minutes. What did you talk about at that panel that hasn't already been covered in this podcast that you and I have been chatting about for the last hour? Um, because, me- because that was about the intersection of being a full-time student, part-time indie, which is something that you juggled while you were at Becker, as your panelists did, your co-panelists, 
in various other institutions. What sort of takeaways did the audience get for those who stayed for the full hour? Um, I think the thing that sticks out most to me was people were concerned about the IPs or the intellectual properties for the games they were going to be creating. And I want to first of all say I'm not a lawyer. So if you have like real lawyer questions, go talk to a lawyer. Um, they'll help you out. But people were concerned about the IPs for the games. And the biggest suggestion I had for that was once money starts getting involved with the game project you're working on, be it you're making money or people, your teammates are starting to put money into the project or the company, make sure that you sign some sort of paperwork that says everything you work on for the game goes to the company and not, not to individual people. It will save you from headaches later. Yeah, and you also want to make sure that, for example, a lot of companies that you may work at, anything you create while at that company belongs to the company, even if you may do it on your own time. That I was surprisingly the case with Steve Wozniak when he invented the Apple computer. He was doing it on HP's time. And so out of his own conscience, he went to Hewlett Packard and said, do you want this thing that I made because I'm one of your employees? And HP said, no, we'll pass. And yeah. so you know, he was in the free and clear. He did everything on the up and up. So there was no legal or moral obstacle to him saying to Steve Jobs, hey, let's start a company and sell this thing. And yeah. So I imagine the same may be true at an academic level, although perhaps less likely, but you still want to make sure that the school can't lay any claim to work that you did in the classroom. Yeah, it's always a good question to ask, even if you get hired at a game studio, to just ask if also if I'm doing anything on my free time like, for example, a board game, like, is this going to be a problem? Is there some sort of conflict of interests between the game I'm working on on the side and you, the company who I'm working for? I think it's always good to ask that question. Most, at least from what I found, most companies, game companies are pretty cool about it, but I still think it's a good thing to ask. It's better to be safe than sorry. Yeah, but you have to be aware that you may not like the answer. For example, I was leaving my job as an editor at Computer World Magazine when I was launching my YouTube channel because those two would not have been allowed to coexist. Computer World is in the business of producing online multimedia covering the tech industry, and that's exactly what I was doing for YouTube. I never could have done those things together. On the other end of the spectrum is a company I mentioned before, Disruptor Beam, which makes Star Trek timelines. They don't require any of their employees to sign any sort of non-compete clause. So while you're working there, as long as you're doing your job, you can do whatever the heck you want in your spare time. And I love that philosophy. It's the same one that, again, Automatic has about WordPress, which is the easier we make it for you to leave, the more you'll want to stay. Yeah, I agree. But I also think, again, with maybe not getting the answer you want, you also don't want to be, like, for example, with you working on this YouTube channel and it goes completely viral and now you're making tons of money off of it and you're told oh well you made it on company time or it's competing like it's ours now and that's just a bummer so even if you don't like the answer you get i still think it's a good question to ask so you can at least plan accordingly what you're going to do right so that you're not surprised later 
fortunately, I am in an unusual circumstance where, if necessary, I have a lawyer who can check these things out for me. Probably most people who are just doing the indie thing, especially if they're just a one-person studio, may not have that privilege. But, for example, I took advantage of my lawyer when I was considering signing a deal with a very well-known YouTube multi-channel network, which seemed like they were offering me a good deal. And I ran it past my lawyer, and he said, you stand nothing to gain and everything to lose by signing that contract. It's all in the details. Yeah, I also think it's actually good. Once you have a company, again, that is making money or money is being put into it, I think it's good to at least start talking to a lawyer. Like, you might not need their services, but I don't think it hurts to start setting up a relationship with a lawyer because you never know when you might need a lawyer and it's much easier to talk to and work with someone you already know than trying to find someone like as fast as possible because you need a lawyer that's just kind of my opinion but I think it's a pretty good opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and it's an investment. If you get the lawyer now, you may avoid scenarios that require a lot more lawyering later. This is entirely true. And hopefully it will save you from headaches as well. If you're getting into the indie gaming scene, you're going to have headaches regardless. This is true. Hopefully you'll have one less headache to worry about. That's true. You can't avoid headaches, but you can minimize them at least. Hopefully, yes. Well, gosh, we have talked about so much. Zephyr Workshop, Becker, Mass Digi, Boston Fig, Lawyers, Kickstarter. Is there anything else you want to chat about, or have I kept you on the line long enough? I would say if you want to make video games, just go for it and don't give up. Because it's pretty difficult. People, I assume, think it's all kind of just hanging out. And playing games all day, and it's not like that. There's a lot more to it, but if you're dedicated to wanting to make games, just keep working at it and you'll get there. Awesome. I hope that's true for everybody who has the resilience and passion and dedication to stick with this. And passion, it can be exploited by employers. Sometimes they say, oh, if you love the job enough, we don't have to pay you that much. But at the same time, if you're doing this for yourself, if you don't have an employer... For a long time, at the beginning, passion may be all you have, and that has to be enough to see you through. That's definitely true. So, Sarah, we talked about where to find Zephyr online. Where can we find you online? I have a Facebook page. I'm Sarah Como. You can find me on Facebook. Um, I think my picture currently is really cool. I'm holding up a Super Smash Brothers champion cardboard belt. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, also under Sarah Como. You can shoot me an email at sarah.como2011 at gmail.com. And I'm also uh, on Twitter at sarahc underscore leveled, L-E-V-E-L-D. Um, and yeah, those are the best places you can find me. And what about offline? What are the next Boston events that we can find you at? Not just the weekly and monthly stuff, but any big events coming up before Boston Fig in September? So there is actually, this is kind of a surprise to me, there's a Worcester Comic Con happening this year. It's the first one. It's June 27th and 28th at the DCU in Worcester. And I plan on going to that because it's a brand new thing. It sounds really cool. And I also love comic books. 
Wow, I had no idea about this event. I found their website at massivecomiccon.com, and as you said, it's at the DCU Center, which has a special place in my heart, actually, because as this episode of Polygamer airs, it is April 22nd, and 25 years ago today, I was at the Worcester Centrum Center, as it used to be called, competing in the Nintendo World Championships. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I came in second for my state in my age group, and there was a big article in the Worcester Telegram and Gazette all about it. I had played Super Mario Brothers, Rad Racer, and Tetris, and uh, gosh, what what a great memory that was. And anytime I go back to the Centrum, whether it's to see uh, Worcester Sharks ice hockey game or a Garth Brooks concert or apparently Comic-Con, I always think about going there and competing in the Nintendo World Championships. Oh, that's such a cool memory. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to hijack your story, but thank you so much for spending the last hour sharing it with us. It's been great chatting with you, and I look forward to seeing you at Comic-Con, Boston Fig. I'm not going to Gen Con, but maybe at Kineticon, and I'm sure I'll be seeing you at the Boston Indie Scene. Definitely. Thank you very much for having me. I had a lot of fun as well, and keep doing these podcasts. I love them. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. Thank you.